And welcome to episode eight of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As usual, I am your host, Joe, and here we are once again to talk about another wonderful game from the DOS gaming era. So uh, recording this episode a little bit earlier than I normally would. This is actually, uh, I'm recording on Sunday, July 1st, so happy Canada Day to, uh, to all of my fellow Canadians. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful day. The sun is shining, and uh, I am looking out the window to the very, very warm outdoors in my nicely air-conditioned house, which uh, on one hand makes me very happy, and on the other hand makes me a little sad. But I'm here recording, and that's good enough for me. So um, anyways, let's get right to it, because uh, we're talking Command and Conquer this week, and uh, Despite the fact I'm really only going to be talking about the first game in much detail, this is a huge topic, and uh, I got a lot to say. So, on to the news. Not a ton, since uh, since it's only been about a week since the last show came out. But uh, one thing that did occur this week is uh, that Telltale Games is uh, became available for purchase and download on goodoldgames.com, GOG.com. Now, the reason I bring this up is that, well, Telltale Games... You know, hasn't been around long enough to really have any games that are in the time frame of uh, of things that I cover on the show. Uh, they do, of course, make a whole bunch of really great uh, continuations and reboots and reimaginings of uh, of old game series. For example, like I talked about way back in episode one, uh, the current Sam and Max games are made by Telltale Games. In addition to uh, to remakes of the original Monkey Island games and the follow-on Monkey Island, uh, I guess, more uh, recent episode type of uh, type of adventure games. And on top of that, they do a whole bunch of other kind of adventure-style games. I know the Penny Arcade guys have, I think, three uh, adventure games with them coming from Telltale right now and all that. So uh, Telltale Games now available on GOG.com. You can go check it out there. Uh, as I'm recording this, I believe the uh, there's a 60% off sale on uh on all of their titles on GOG. Now that will probably be over by the time uh, the episode airs, but uh, hopefully you guys have been paying attention to uh, things like my Twitter, the show Twitter, and uh, the show Facebook group where, uh, where I did post about that. So that's that for Telltale Games. Aside from that news-wise, I guess this is a little bit of not industry news or anything like that, but uh, I did talk in the last show about receiving my Roland MT32 in uh, in the mail, and I hadn't, as of last show, had a chance to hook it up. Well, I have since had the chance to hook it up, and it is incredible. It's everything I could have hoped for and more. Um, you know, running old games, I played a couple. I fiddled with the, a couple of the Space Quest games, uh, getting it up and running. I booted up Wing Commander and um, a little bit of, uh, of next week's game using the MT32, and it sounds amazing, and I am mesmerized by staring at the little green screen and watching the things flicker and the custom, uh, you know, uh, custom patches being loaded. It, it shows descriptions, and, uh, you know, I'm definitely going to do a whole show, I think, about MIDI and, uh, you know, rolling devices in general and, and maybe the, uh, you know, the sound blasters and ad-libs and, and kind of the evolution of, of, of video game sound and MIDI music. And stuff like that. I'll probably do a whole show on that, so I won't go into too much detail about this. But I just got to say, if uh, if you guys do like playing a lot of these games, like especially a lot of the Sierra games and the LucasArts Adventure games, and uh, a bunch of games from uh, from Origin Systems, from kind of you know the uh, the late '80s, probably more the early, the very late '80s, like maybe '88, '89, to uh, you know probably about 1995-ish uh if you can get your hands on a Roland MT32 off of eBay and some of them do sell for for quite a bit of money but uh you know you can pretty easily without too much effort get one for under $100 you know if you can get that up and going the sound is is just great and it's really kind of tickled my fancy to uh to try and get my hands on a couple of other things like the follow-on uh Roland SC55 which is more of a unit for for general MIDI or MIDI or however you pronounce it and uh you know that's kind of taken advantage of by by later games after the MT32 kind of 
got old. So, you know, maybe I'm going to try and get my hands on that. I have an eBay save search going on to try and get my hands on an SC55 or maybe an SC88, which is kind of the next version of the SC55. So anyways, I'm going off on a tangent because I find this stuff incredibly interesting. But uh, but yeah, so uh, look look in the future probably uh, for, for an episode about more of this MIDI hardware, kind of one of those tech-focused specials that uh, like I did for emulation and uh, and yeah. So this week I'm kicking off things a little bit differently. Uh, I got some listener emails as kind of follow-up to uh, to the last episode on Wolfenstein 3D, which uh, which I hope everyone enjoyed a lot. It was a lot of fun, kind of going into such a uh, an iconic game and such an iconic company as as ID Software. So uh, I got two emails, as I said, and um, here we go. The first one is from Andreas, and he writes, "Hi Joe, really great show again." As usual, I enjoyed the developer story most. I already knew most of it, but did learn a few new tidbits of information. I agree that Wolf 3D doesn't really hold up, actually. In fact, I played Doom before I played Wolf 3D, and for me, that was already enough to completely render Wolfenstein obsolete. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody today, but I do respect its place in history. I especially like the idea of a game engine. Id Software may not have been the first to develop and license one, but they are definitely one of the most significant. I'm actually a software developer myself, and creating engines or frameworks that other people can build things on might just be my favorite aspect of the job. If I had to decide what my dream job would be, working on a game engine under John Carmack would cross my mind. Well, thanks for that, Andreas. And and I do agree, well, you know, maybe id wasn't the first to make game engines and whatever. They really were the first to popularize it and really kind of leverage it, I'd say, as as a business model. You know, I'm sure I, I'm not exactly sure what the deals are, or how these things work, but I would imagine that if I were to create a game on the Doom engine or on the Quake engine, or something like that, that there would be some type of licensing fees for commercial purposes and and blah blah. blah. So, you know, on top of making really great games, I'm sure it rakes in quite a bit of money uh, licensing out their game engine to to other developers. And uh, also, Chris wrote in an email over the week, and he writes, "Hey." Been listening to your podcast and have to say, well done. Very well put together and entertaining. It sure brings back a lot of memories. Just listen to your Wolfenstein cast and agree that the game does not hold up that well, other than the nostalgia aspect. Looking forward to what you have to say on Command & Conquer, which is a game I feel has stood the test of time a lot better. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Chris. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's a little bit sad to say, and it's unfortunate, and I don't really like doing it, but... Uh, you know, I, I had to report on what I thought, and I thought as soon as I loaded up Wolfenstein 3D that I was kind of I was jarred a little bit as to how basic and simplistic and limiting it was, and it definitely does have a very important place in in the history of first-person shooters and you know the game industry in general. Like I said, the same about uh, Andreas's email with regard to you know the packaging of engines. And even the kind of the jump in technology at the time to make the graphics uh, render as quickly as they do. But as a game itself, yeah, unfortunately, it's just not that much fun anymore. But uh, all that aside, it's it's a very great game, a very groundbreaking game. And I'm, uh, I'm very glad that you guys are both enjoying the show. So thanks for those emails. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Overview. So there we go. That's the first chunk of the show. We're going to keep things tight because we are now going to get on to our main topic for this week, Command and Conquer. Now, this is a huge series containing something to the effect of 12 full games across three kind of sub-franchises. Uh, I figure I'm going to kind of cover the first game in detail, maybe the second a little bit, and... Uh, you know, the rest I'm just going to have to skim over just, you know, so you have an idea about how big this uh, this all is. So I guess the best way to cover such a massive topic is to begin at the beginning. Uh, this series was originally conceived and developed by Westwood Studios and published by Virgin Interactive. So the first game, just called and originally Command and Conquer, uh, released in the venerable year of 1995. Uh, once sequels came out, the game was retroactively subtitled Command and Conquer Tiberium or Tiberian Dawn. Command and Conquer Tiberian Dawn. 
kind of like they did for Star Wars Episode Four. It first came out, and it was just called Star Wars. And then when additional movies started coming out, it was all of a sudden renamed Star Wars A New Hope. So we're kind of in <laughs> the same boat as, uh, as Mr. Lucas was here with the Command & Conquer games. Affirmative. So as we generally do... Uh, let's talk a little bit about the genre of Command and Conquer. So Command and Conquer, or CNC, as uh, I may call it from now on, because it's easier to say, is a real-time strategy game. So the real-time strategy, or RTS genre, tang- uh, tends to task the player with maneuvering and positioning various units and structures in an effort to accomplish a set of, uh, of mission goals. Now, these goals can range from anything to defeating enemy forces for control of a given map, to capturing enemy assets, to defending, say, a fixed position, or escorting allied units, or basically almost any other type of, I guess, somewhat military objective that you can even think of. Uh, Of course, you don't have to do this alone. Almost all RTS games provide the player with a mechanism to create a base of operations, with facilities to train additional combat units, support units, and uh, and other things like that. This is usually fueled by a resource gathering system. So these resources can range from wood or gold or other ores to much more esoteric compounds depending on the setting of the game. Uh, resources are either used as currency or are converted into currency for building units directly or uh, or they're converted, or they're used kind of more directly as uh, as raw materials to uh, to build units and structures. In addition to building units, uh, these resources can also be used for research into upgrades for your existing and future forces. So increasing damage, increasing armor, adding additional special abilities to units, uh, you know, things like that. A lot of this may sound very similar to my description of turn-based strategy from back when we discussed uh, the XCOM series. And uh, from the aspect of kind of unit resources and base management, yeah, you're correct. This They are very similar. They're both strategy games. They involve tactics and strategy and research and building and training units and, and all of that stuff. Now, the huge and compelling difference here is how this is accomplished. Uh, in XCOM, you could sit, you can take your time agonizing over each decision during your turn. If you wanted your turn to take two days, you could do that. Uh, So in real-time strategy, the concept of a turn doesn't exist. Everything happens live. At uh, at the same moment you're figuring out what to do next, so is your enemy. So this aspect definitely adds an air of urgency to the gameplay and has led to endless debates within uh, game communities about the best way to approach RTS gameplay, uh, base build orders, which units are most effective in which situations, uh, etc. Unlike some of the other genres we've covered previously, RTS games can become very complex and very frantic. Uh, they require the player to keep track of many disparate groups of units, uh, their different abilities, their movements in comparison to observed enemy movements, the status of your base, resource levels, unit production cues, mission objectives, and much more. God, I'm, I think I'm making myself anxious just talking about all this stuff. Uh, It takes a special kind of player to be very good at these games. Anyone can play them, but for the people that are really the top of these, you have to be a very special kind of person, a very organized kind of person, a very alert kind of person. So that's just an overview of the genre. Uh, We'll go over everything in a bit more detail in the gameplay discussion. Time to rock and roll. So time to chat about the story. Unlike many other strategy games, all Command & Conquer games tend to have very engaging storylines. Your missions have a direct and immediate effect on the game world as a whole, and uh, those effects are communicated to you in fairly high quality for the time, uh, full motion video sequences containing human actors in front of virtual sets. So like I said before, the entire series is split into three separate, I guess you want to call them game worlds or timelines or, uh, or something like that. Uh, we have the original game series, which started with, with the first game, which is kind of referred to unofficially as the Tiberian series. Uh, and then the two follow-up series, Red Alert and Generals. So Command & Conquer Tiberian Dawn is the inaugural game of both the franchise as a whole and, uh, and the first quote-unquote Tiberian series of games. So I'll concentrate on that storyline. Uh, the game revolves around two factions – the Global Defense Initiative, or GDI, and the Mysterious Brotherhood of Nod. So, 
It's the latter half of the 1990s, and a meteorite has crashed on Earth near the Tiber River in Italy. Uh, this meteor strike introduces an alien substance onto the Earth, which becomes known as Tiberium. Tiberium has an interesting and very valuable property. It has the ability to leach precious metals from the surrounding Earth and crystallizes it kind of in uh, these pods on the surface which makes the uh, resource-laden Tiberium pods very easy and very inexpensive to mine. Uh, here's a clip from an early mission briefing, which gives a bit of kind of background of the, uh, of the situation. Sanctioned by the United Nations, the Global Defense Initiative has one goal. Eliminate multinational terrorism in an effort to preserve freedom. The Brotherhood of Nod, an ancient and secret society, maintains strong ties with most global terrorist organizations. Commanded by this man, known only as Kane, Nod's long-term goals are unknown. However, recent activities include expansionary behavior into disenfranchised nations, high-volume investment in global trade markets, and aggressive manipulation of international mass media. These efforts are suspected to be funded by Nod's access to vast Tiberium deposits. Tiberium continues to confound the scientific community, soaking up ground minerals and soil nutrients like a sponge. The end result of this unique leaching process creates the formation of Tiberium crystals, which in precious metals and available for collection with a minimum of mining expense. So as you could hear there, the Brotherhood of Nod, or just Nod, are kind of a quasi-religious secret society read, led by a, uh, a secretive and mysterious leader known as Cain. They see the potential of this new substance and immediately begin investing in development of technology to, uh, to gather up these Tiberium crystals. Soon enough, they control almost half of the global supply of Tiberium, which has become the most valuable commodity in the world. This huge financial base allows them to grow a worldwide army of followers fanatically loyal to Kane. Following a series of relentless international bombings which culminate in the destruction of the fictional Grain Trade Center in Vienna, a wave of mass panic and fear begins to sweep the globe. Now this detail I do not remember from when I originally played the game, but looking back with hindsight it's it's pretty interesting that they went this route. Uh, this game came out in 1995, and considering the events in New York six years later in the real world, uh, this is much scarier to us today than it was back then. Then again, if you think about it I guess, uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the World Trade Center was actually bombed back in the 80s as well, so maybe this isn't as prophetic as I think it is, but it definitely uh, it definitely struck a chord with uh, with me, and I have a feeling going back it may strike a chord with a lot of other uh, North Americans and uh, and other people who were affected by uh, by the whole 9/11 situation. Anyways, these acts are ultimately attributed to uh, the Brotherhood of Nod terrorists and their leader Kane. Uh, the United Nations Security Council realizes that Nod has systematically begun with the unfolding of a centuries-old plan for world domination and sanctions the G7-based Global Defense Initiative Task Force to intervene on its behalf, inadvertently setting a conflict in motion that will escalate into basically what becomes a modern world war. So again here, it's interesting to pick out little details in world politics that have changed since this game came out. For example, something really simple is that the G7 nations have now become the G8 nations with uh, the addition of Russia in 1997, two years after the game came out. So, real-world politics aside, the main overbearing plot during the game itself revolves around Nod's media manipulation, trying to discredit GDI, which could persuade the UN to cut GDI's funding or ultimately dissolve the organization. So, while this is kind of the main overbearing story arc of the entire game, as we've come to know these days with RTS games, the game can be played from the point of view of either faction, Nod or GDI. Obviously, this affects the way the overreaching story unfolds. So from the GDI perspective, you command GDI forces in actions which are instrumental in eliminating Nod's military presence in Europe. You are an unnamed GDI commander under the command of General Mark Shepard. So here's a clip of one of your initial chats with General Shepard. Global Defense Initiative selected. Are you picking this up? Good. I know you need more deep background, but we're up against it. Nod forces have fortified this beachhead at X-16Y-42. 
Intelligence is still coming in, so we can't tell you a lot. But we found a chink in their armor. Commander Carter can sneak you and some backup forces on shore right here. You may get some artillery support from his gunboats, but this is mostly grunt work. Your mission is simple. Knock out all fortifications, eliminate all Nod troops, and establish a beachhead by building your base. Good luck. Under General Shepard's orders, you complete a wide variety of missions, including securing a beach, like we just heard, uh, rescuing civilians, defending GDI bases, and much more. These missions progress across quite a few European nations, including Germany, Poland, Austria, and the Czech Republic. All the while, Nod is dispensing propaganda in their attempts to discredit you and your allies. Now, this media manipulation culminates in a fake fabricated news report showing uh, fake footage of a GDI attack on a village and scenes of women and children being killed. This causes the UN to, as I threatened before, cut GDI's funding. This forces you to play quite a few missions kind of on the lamb, if you will, with, uh, with no external support and very, very few resources. Eventually, a final assault on the Temple of Nod in Sarajevo, Bosnia occurs. It's destroyed, Nod's plans are revealed to the world, GDI clears their name, and the world is safe. So that's kind of the, the GDI subplot. Now, if you decide to go the quote-unquote evil route and play Nod, you begin as a new recruit doing work for the Brotherhood's second-in-command, Seth. And here he is. Brotherhood of Nod selected. So, you're the new addition to the Brotherhood. Well, I'm Seth, just Seth. From God to Cain to Seth, I am his right hand, and I have a task for you. This is Nakumba, and he is causing the Brotherhood much grief. His views do not coincide with ours, and that makes him dangerous. Silence him. So that guy Nakumba that Seth is talking about is uh, an African... He looks like a general. He's dressed up like a general. And uh, I guess that just goes to show you right off the bat that Nod is not concerned about uh, morality or anything like that. Someone's in their way and uh, they have no problem taking them out. So shortly after this mission, Seth commands you to attack a U.S. military installation. And as it turns out, he's done this without Kane's approval. Kane finds out, kills Seth, and starts controlling you directly. Kane entrusts with you the mission of driving GDI forces from Africa through both conventional and more unconventional underhanded uh, means. Ultimately, your mission culminates in two objectives. One, gaining control of GDI's orbital ion cannon, and two, establishing Nod's temple and base of operations in South Africa. Uh, once you complete these objectives, you use the ion cannon to further discredit GDI by destroying a historical landmark and pinning it on them. Potential targets for the uh, the Ion Cannon include the White House, the British Houses of Parliament, the Eiffel Tower, and the Brandenburg Gate. Finally, Nod is poised to repeat the same victory in Europe as uh, as will be played out in the GDI campaign. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. So, on to the gameplay. Command and Conquer does a very good job of dropping you right into the action and bringing you right into its world. Uh, the first time you load the game, you aren't shown a splash screen, you're not asked to type in your name, nothing like that. It jumps right into the intro, which I would play here, except it's really quite long and mostly visual. Uh, and it shows what appears to be a television flipping channels with the occasional static interruptions and snatches of transmissions which sound like they are from a battle. Eventually, the static breaks up and you're asked to choose which campaign you're going to play. Choosing GDI breaks you into the initial mission briefing with General Shepard, which I played back in the story section. And uh, likewise with Nod, where you go and meet Seth. So after this, every mission begins with a similar video briefing, though not always by Shepard and <laughs> obviously very soon not, not always by Seth. So once the briefing completes, you're dropped into the main game view, which is a top-down view of the current mission map. Generally, this centers on the location of your troops' initial deployment. So in a normal mission, you're typically typically required to, uh, to build up a base. And if the base is not yet established, you're provided with what is called a mobile construction vehicle, or MCV. You can't build anything until the MCV is deployed. 
deploying it makes it kind of unfold and convert into a fixed construction yard, which then allows you to build a single structure, a power plant. Building a power plant and placing it allows you then to build either a barracks or with which to train troops or a refinery to uh, start collecting Tiberium ore and make money. Here you can see the beginnings of the tech tree, which will rule your decision making for the rest of the game. Almost every building in the game is a node in the tech tree. Building one allows you to build more. Initially, this is a simple choice. There are a few buildings to create and they all build up relatively quickly. But as your tech tree expands, you have decisions to make. Do you build a war factory for armored vehicles? Or do you build a radar dome so you can have access to your minimap? Build orders are a constant source of debate in the RTS community, like I said, and uh, proper order and attention to you know when construction completes and keeping things moving along at a, at a relatively brisk pace can easily spell the difference between victory and defeat in this game. As your buildings undergo construction, resources are steadily deducted from your credit balance. So say you build a refinery costing 2,000 credits. The full 2,000 isn't deducted right at the top when you click build, but as it builds you see the money ticking away until the building is ready. If your balance reaches zero and the building isn't ready yet, construction pauses until more credits become available. Now, when you complete the building, you can place it anywhere within a distance of a few squares, I believe it's two squares, of an existing building. On placement, the building deploys in a very cool unfolding style of animation. It sounds a little bit silly when I say a building is unfolding, but it does really look cool. Uh, the only building that can be placed on any flat surface with impunity is the construction yard. This tends to force your bases to be, uh, to be fairly compact which is, I guess, a good thing and a bad thing because being that the footprint of the base is smaller, it's easier to defend, but all your buildings are much closer together so they could be susceptible to kind of area of attack uh, issues, splash damage, and, uh, and stuff like that. Of course, you can't do much with the money you start off with. That's where the refinery comes in. When you build one, you're also provided with a harvester. The harvester is a vehicle which will automatically make trips back and forth from the nearest field of Tiberium back to the refinery. Uh, when it does so, it dumps its load of collected ore and the refinery begins to process it. At the same time, your credit balance uh, proportionately ticks up. The same way it ticks down when you're building things, it takes a bit of time for the full load to be processed and your the full amount of, uh, of credits to be refunded to you. Now, the two sides have generally similar units with, uh, with pretty much equivalent capabilities. So, you know, the, uh, the Humvee on the GDI side is similar to the buggy on the Nod side with regard to weapons loadout and things like that. The only real difference is that the GDI units tend to be a little bit slower and a little bit tougher than their Nod counterparts, uh, lending themselves a little bit more to a frontal assault whereas the Nod units are lighter, quicker, and tend to favor more guerrilla-style hit-and-run tactics. So, the single-player game runs you through about 15 missions per campaign. There's a total of 50 in the whole game between both sides. So you ask, well, Joe, isn't that 25 missions per side? And yes, there are 25 missions per side. However, uh, at times you have choices to make as to which path to take through the game. You know, you have a possibility of, uh, of doing two objectives, so you have to choose one over the other. Uh, this was put in to increase replayability. So, you know, if you went, you know, took the north objective in the first choice and then the south objective in the second choice and whatever, you can flip that over and have a slightly different game experience. And now, every mission wasn't exactly the same. It wasn't all go kill all the enemies on the map, etc. At times, the missions involved capturing, like I said before, a specific enemy building, defense of your base for a set amount of time, or even simply surviving with no base and only the units you're provided uh, at the beginning and throughout the, uh, the time of the mission. Command & Conquer also had a multiplayer mode where you could skirmish with up to four players via network, modem, or null modem. Now, if you don't know what a null modem is, it was basically a serial cable that physically connected two computers together. Uh, multiplayer on different maps was a lot of fun, and I will talk a bit more about those details in the Dev Story section. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So welcome to Tech Focus. Uh, before I get in, I'll do a little program note here. So I think I'm going to change up exactly what Tech Focus means. Before, it used to be where I talked about a specific tech topic, like I did with emulation or like I did at the end of the first episode with uh, with the scum. 
game engine. I'm going to continue to talk about those things, but those will be kind of more tech-focused specials, I guess, if we want to call them. So from now on, the regular tech-focused section will be where I talk about the game's technical aspects, system requirements, and uh, graphics and sound, and stuff like that. Command and Conquer was not only a groundbreaking game in its definition of the real-time strategy genre, but also in the way it looked and sounded. The original DOS release sported then really great looking 320x200 VGA graphics at 256 colors. Each unit had a distinctive look, and even though the smaller units like the Mini Gunner and the Rocket Soldiers were only a few pixels tall, you could still very clearly differentiate them. Of course, this came with some system requirements. The original DOS version of Command & Conquer required a 486 DX266 MHz with 8 MB of RAM, DOS 5.0 at least, and at least an MCGA graphics array, a Sound Blaster compatible sound card, 30 MB of hard drive space, and a 2X or double speed CD-ROM. So at the time, uh, you know, these weren't bad requirements, but they were definitely somewhat higher than, uh, than a lot of other uh, games. You know, it wasn't quite at the level of requiring a Pentium, but uh, a 486DX266 was, was getting pretty close. So on top of that, this game was firmly on the full motion video cutscene bandwagon. So as I said in the previous section, uh, before each mission, you had a relatively well-acted mission briefing featuring real actors on CGI sets. After the briefing, each mission had a small lead-in CGI sequence showing how your forces were inserted into the theater of battle, and finally, each mission has different video for both winning and losing conditions. So while we're looking at these videos today, we can tell that they're quite low res, with low color depth, with somewhat cheesy looking CGI sets. However, at the time, they looked really great. Uh, the sound effects were also very well done, clear, and not annoying at all. I mention this because you hear them a lot. Now, whenever you click on, uh, on a unit, or you tell a unit to do something, they respond, you know, a little bit like, uh, a little bit like this. Affirmative. Negative. Not a problem. Ready and waiting. Time to rock and roll. I've got a present for you. You know, all that kind of stuff like that. So. You know, you would think that if those noises, or if those, sorry, those sounds were not, you know, somewhat enjoyable to hear, were not somewhat, uh, were, were grating or anything like that, uh, it would become very annoying very, very quickly. But, at least to me, that is most definitely, uh, most definitely not the case. You know, all of these sounds sound very cool, they sound very distinctively Command and & Conquer, and, uh, and they sound very high quality you know those were the unit sounds over there and then you also have your uh your ui which which has a very distinctive interactive voice as well so you know you would tell you know it would tell you things it would warn you like if your base is under attack our base is under attack or if you build too many buildings and your power levels got low and needed to build a new power plant low power or in the horrible situation someone is dropping a nuclear weapon on you nuclear warhead approaching so you know uh really really cool and you know i i liked these sound effects personally so much that uh that back around when the game came out they put out kind of an official windows 95 theme pack and uh i do remember downloading that somehow or getting my hands on it somehow it may even have been on the cd i can't quite remember but uh you know i, I integrated that into my my windows 95 desktop environment so i could continue to hear the sounds and and do all that cool stuff just because i thought that they were so well done. So finally, we come to the music. Now, you may have guessed from the beginning of the show where I went on and on about my MT32 and, and MIDI that I'm a big fan of MIDI music, especially the MIDI music of this time period. I love the sound of it, I love how it works technically and all of that, but at the end of the day, when you hear MIDI, well, you know it's MIDI. Uh, CNC was one of the earliest games to introduce fully recorded music tracks as their in-game music, and they also helped it to gain popularity kind of as an industry standard going forward. The music of this game was quite unexpected. It was composed by Frank Klepacki, 
and uh, the soundtrack for the first few CNC games covers a wide gamut of really cool musical genres, all with a slightly electronic tinge to them. Some of the tracks are hard rocking, more industrial, others are full out 90s pop, and others are much more epic and orchestral. All these songs are really, really great. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So, for such an incredibly popular game series, unlike many of the other games we've covered, Command & Conquer doesn't really attribute itself to any one person. There's no superstar game designer sitting behind it all. It's more a story of evolution. It does, however, begin with a series of earlier games, but, you know, we'll get to that in a bit. First, let's talk Westwood Studios. So Westwood Associates was founded in 1985 by Brett Sperry and Louis Castle. Uh, Initially, the company did a lot of contract work for other publishers, kind of porting 8-bit games to 16-bit systems like the Commodore, the Amiga, and the Atari ST. Proceeds from this conversion work was put into the development of new in-house titles. Their first game, published by Electronic Arts, was an RPG named Mars Saga. It was a passable game, However, pressure to meet release deadlines by EA, I believe, and I'm not surprised by, uh, caused it to ship with quite a few flaws. More importantly than, uh, than Mars Saga, however, is in 1990, they released a game set in one of my favorite tabletop game universes, Battletech. Uh, in Battletech, the Crescent Hawk's Revenge, Westwood tried to recreate the turn-based tactical battle mech combat of the Battletech tabletop game in a slightly more exciting manner than just, you know, the straight-up turn-based, take-as-much-time-as-you-need, uh, you know, turn-based strategy method. While the tabletop game was truly turn-based, Crescent Hawk's Revenge was developed as more of a hybrid game. Uh, the combat action in this game played out in real time. However, the player could pause the game at any time to issue orders to their mechs and speed up or slow down time to play things out at any desired speed. This was a very novel approach. It made the game much more exciting, and uh, overall the game was very well received. So without realizing it, Westwood had, in Crescent Hawk's Revenge, triggered a trend away from turn-based strategy into more real-time gameplay. So, emboldened by this, Westwood started work on a fully real-time strategy game called Dune 2, The Building of a Dynasty. Now, some of my sci-fi buddies should be well aware of the world this game is set in. Dune 2 is effectively a sequel to the 1984 David Lynch movie, Dune, which itself is a somewhat simplified, and some people may argue completely ridiculous, uh, film adaptation of the classic Frank Herbert novel of the same name a book that I have tried repeatedly to read but have never quite been able to get through. I just can't do it. Maybe I'll give it another go. Everyone tells me Dune is great, but a god, I just cannot do it. So Dune 2 took the real-time elements of Crescent Hawk and dumped all of the pausing to issue orders mechanics. All the action occurred in real time. You take on the role of a commander of one of the three noble houses with uh, the goal of wresting control of the planet Arrakis from the other two houses. The reason for this was to achieve full ownership of mining rights to a valuable substance known as spice, which you mine throughout the game to build your units, make money, blah blah blah. Dune 2 introduced such staple RTS features as a world map where you choose your next mission, resource gathering to support unit construction, a tech tree, different factions, unique unit types. Uh, Again, the game was very well received and is widely considered to be the template for all RTS games that came after it. That was, I believe, 1990 or 1992, something to that effect. Uh, I don't have it written down here, but now it is 1993. Dune 2, okay, yes, it was 1992 because Dune 2 released one year before, uh, one year before 1993, that is, which was clearly, if my math is correct, 1992. Uh, And Westwood Associates had in 1992 also renamed itself Westwood Studios. 
in the process of creating Dune 2, like with any big project, be it a game project or a development project or building a house or digging a hole in the ground, uh, the team was left at the end with a wish list of improvements that they wish they had time to put in. It was decided that these improvements would be integrated into Westwood's next real-time strategy release. Thus far, all of Westwood's very successful titles had been supported by pre-existing franchises like Battletech and like Dune. Uh, it was time to build the ultimate RTS using an original intellectual property, an original idea, an original game world. Thus, Command & Conquer was born. Now, Command & Conquer may have been born right there, but it wasn't really born right there. Originally, the game designers Brett Sperry, Edie Laramore, and Joseph Bostich wanted to create a high-fantasy real-time strategy game. However, they looked around and they considered the political climate of, you know, the early to mid-90s, in addition to the recent events that had occurred in the, in the Gulf, the Gulf War. And uh, that kind of motivated them to decide to, uh, to set the game in a more contemporary setting. When asked about the setting of Command & Conquer, Westwood founder Louis Castle said, War was in the news, and the threat of terrorism was on everyone's mind. That definitely had an effect on the fictional world of C&C. Though a parallel universe was created to avoid dealing with the sobering issues of a real war, we wanted to make it a contemporary war for a contemporary world with contemporary politics. At the time, Brett said that it had seemed to him that the next wars won't be fought nation to nation, but fought between Western society and a kind of anachronistic terror organization, or sorry, anarchistic terror organization that doesn't have a centralized government. It turned out to be very prophetic. And indeed, it was very prophetic based on uh, the state of the world today. But anyways, this decision was indeed a lucky one because uh, while the game was slated to come out in 1995, in 1994, the original Warcraft Orcs and Humans would uh, be released shortly before CNC would hit shelves. Having another fantasy RTS as an also ran against the game that would attain the popularity of, of the original Warcraft and its follow-up games would have probably been a recipe for failure. So, the engine and concepts from Dune 2 were taken, moved into a contemporary setting, Spice was changed into Tiberium Ore, and CNC was born. The game shipped on two CDs, even though it very, very easily fit on a single disc. Now, the reason for this was to encourage multiplayer gaming. One disc contained the Nod campaign, and the other had the GDI campaign on it, just to have a reason, really, for shipping two discs. However, both discs could be used for multiplayer for either faction. The box advertised that the game came with a free second copy for a friend. This is hailed as a huge contributing factor to CNC's success. I distinctly remember playing this for the first time by borrowing a friend's GDI disc while they were playing the Nod campaign, and tying up my parents' phone line playing modem to modem with, uh, with him and my other friends. Network play on the original DOS version supported an, at the time, unheard of four players. And obviously at the time of the DOS version, there wasn't any concept of the internet, so there was no internet play, but that was later introduced in the, uh, the Windows 95 Gold Command & Conquer release. Command & Conquer released in 1995 to huge acclaim. It was a runaway success. While Dune 2 may have defined the template for the genre, Command & Conquer truly popularized it to the larger gaming world. So, with all of this success, Command & Conquer spawned four direct sequels and two additional sub-series of games. The next game, released in October 1996, was named Command & Conquer Red Alert. Now, this game was originally intended as a prequel to the original CNC, and I guess if you really look at it, yeah, you could see how it was, but this fact was really not made very clear in the final game's gameplay and, and storyline, so the idea kind of post-launch was, was pretty much dropped. Uh, the Red Alert series consists of three games which take place in an alternate version of the 1950s. The intro to the first game begins with Albert Einstein in his lab in New Mexico in 1946. He's created a time machine known as the Chronosphere, which he uses to travel back in time to 1924 and kill Hitler as he's being released from prison. This causes the timeline to split, creating a world where World War II never happened and the Soviet Union becomes immensely powerful under the leadership of Joseph Stalin. 
the story was again told via well-produced full-motion video cutscenes, which were now becoming a staple of the CNC series. Red Alert, I'm not going to go too much into the gameplay or any details like that, but this was probably one of my favorite, actually it probably is, without a doubt, my favorite of all the CNC games. It continued to introduce more quality of life improvements, such as the ability to group units, uh, assign them number keys, queue construction, and uh, it also introduced truly differing playstyles between the Allied and the Soviet factions. The music continued to be very good, including my favorite CNC track, Hell March, which uh, I think I'm going to end off the show with. 1999 saw the release of Command and Conquer Tiberian Sun. So this game is a direct sequel to the first game and takes place 30 years after the first Command and Conquer. And while the original game was set in a very real-world contemporary environment, the new game existed in much more of a sci-fi style world, with your character moving from location to location in a large command ship that could actually fly in space, so it would kind of go up into the upper atmosphere, head up into space, and then come back down onto another battleground. Uh, the full motion video in this game was top-notch. The, uh, the designers replaced the first-person perspective of the first two games with a more cinematic approach. So you no longer played in the body of a nameless commander, but you were actually a character. You played as Commander Michael McNeil, who was actually played by Michael Bean from Alien, from, uh, Alien and from Terminator. Uh, his commander, General Solomon, was played by James Earl Jones, and I don't think I have to give uh, any references for people to know who he is. In addition to this, the view moves from top-down to more of an isometric uh, kind of three-quarter view perspective, which allowed for elevation changes and uh, buildings to be both as used as both obstacles and cover for the first time. So at the time of this release, Westwood was in the process of being acquired by Electronic Arts. EA was buying them from Virgin Interactive. EA was, as usual, pushing for the game to be released as early as possible. Uh, it released with, with a few issues. There were bugs. But uh, despite that, and despite being considered the most hyped game of 1999, it delivered the goods and it reviewed quite well from both critics and fans. Now, from there on out, there are uh, most definitely quite a few more games, including Command & Conquer Renegade, which was a first-person shooter, two sequels to Red Alert, numerous expansions, and an entirely new subseries called Command & Conquer Generals, which came out in 2003. So what does the future hold for Command and Conquer? So poking around a little bit, I found out that the Command and Conquer franchise is still going strong despite a minor setback. In 2010, EA released Command and Conquer 4 Tiberian Twilight. This game introduced many substantial changes to the CNC formula. The game had no base building and no resource gathering. Instead, a player had to capture a series of control points across a map and hold them until they'd gained enough points to win. Uh, this game, unfortunately, was universally panned by both critics and players, potentially spelling the end of CNC. However, this hasn't proven to be the case. In May of this year, Electronic Arts released a free-to-play browser MMO called Command & Conquer Tiberium Alliances. Uh, it's still quite different, with no uh, real story per se. It's more of a small-scale empire-building game that reminds me a lot of an old BBS door game called Baron Realms Elite that I used to play. And, uh, you know, probably also a lot of tabletop-type uh, games like uh, like Risk and things like that. Uh, and finally, uh, slated for 2013, we have Command & Conquer Generals 2 being developed by BioWare Victory, a new internal development team that EA has put together and attached to their Bioware division. Now, the game promises to return to the tried-and-true RTS formula created by the original game, and as time progresses, I will, uh, I will keep you all posted on uh, any developments there. So where can we get Command & Conquer today? Uh, Command & Conquer The First Decade is available on EA's Origin service for download. This pack contains all the CNC games published from 1995 to 2003 along with all of their expansions. This is 12 games in one, people. Uh, they're all optimized to run on Windows XP, as this pack was originally released on February 7th, 2006. But, as I said, even though it's a bit older, it is uh, totally available on EA's Origin service. As good as this sounds, I ran into some issues with this one. 
I had quite a bit of trouble getting the first two oldest games, uh, the original Command and & Conquer and Red Alert, running on my Win764 machine. They started up, but no matter what I did, the color palette kept getting messed up. Instead of seeing things in proper grays and blacks and whatever, I'd see rainbow colors. Uh, so it seemed like, you know, the color palette was getting, uh, was getting corrupted somehow. There's a pretty big fan community around this release, and uh, there's some pretty well-supported fan patches, but even applying those couldn't solve my issue. Luckily, I still have a laptop sitting around running Windows XP, and so I just installed it there, and everything ran great. So, you know, uh, you may not, as I usually say, run into the same problems that I did doing this, but uh, if you do have a machine running Windows XP, then uh, you'll definitely have a bit of an easier time getting uh, getting this whole set to run, at the very least the first few games, which they've had to tweak quite a bit. Now, if you're only interested in the first game, you can actually get that legally for free. In 2007, for Command & Conquer's 12th anniversary, EA released the Windows 95 Gold Edition of the first game as a free download. It's still legally available around the web, and uh, I'll put a link to the PC World uh, location to get it in uh, in the show notes. Now, as I said in the emulation episode, this also doesn't run very well on Windows 7. And being that it's running on Windows 95, it's also not really ideal to, to use uh, under DOSBox. So for the fun of it, uh, I believe it does run fine under Windows XP, but for the fun of it, I actually ran this on my DOS gaming machine that I built just for the podcast. I figured this was created for Windows 95. My gaming machine has Windows 98 on it, so why not? It ran perfectly. It was it was actually really, really surprising how well it ran on, on the old Pentium 2. Are you a fan of the award-winning web series The Guild? Then join us for Knights of the Guild podcast, their official fan podcast. But it's not like your typical fan podcast, as the host, Kenny, has been working on The Guild since Season 2 and takes his listeners behind the scenes with exclusive interviews, special guest hosts, little-known behind-the-scenes facts, and so much more. So come on over to iTunes and download Knights of the Guild podcast, or find us online at knightsoftheguild.com. So time for the big question. Does Command & Conquer hold up today? Well, this one's easy. Yes, yes, yes. Emphatically, yes. More than any game I've covered so far, CNC holds up great. The funny thing about this game is that if you compare it to a recent RTS game, say something like StarCraft II that just came out, you know, about a year ago, or anything like that, uh, aside from better graphics and a slightly different method of storytelling, it plays exactly the same way. Westwood really struck gold with the formula they established way back in Dune 2. It's as satisfying today as it was in 1995, even looking at it out of the context of its time, without nostalgia, without anything like that, this game, to me, holds up just as well to any modern RTS game than, uh, you know, to the original Warcraft that it was competing to, competing, competing against at the time. I would most definitely give it the very least the free original version of CNC a go if you have any inkling of interest in the real-time strategy genre and you've never tried it. If you're still interested, Red Alert is to me by far the best CNC game ever, both, uh, you know, like I said, in my opinion and also according to critics. So that's that. That's it for another show. Uh, thanks again to the guys for the emails and to everyone else for taking the time out of your busy lives to keep on listening to me for some reason. Uh, next time, I will be covering the great 1990 Dynamics Flight Sim, Red Baron. So any of you World War I or Flight Sim fanatics from back in the day, I hope we'll get a bit of pleasure out of this one. So, as usual, thanks again to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. Uh, you'll find all of his work over at moyermultimedia.com. Check out the show notes and other things over at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. And if you can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. And as usual, me personally at billybob476. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or stream us live at Stitcher Radio. Thanks, everyone, and I will see you next time for Red Baron here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated.
You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Joy.